the CrimeWire Podcast. Thank you for listening to the CrimeWire Podcast. This is episode three. Uh, I'm Damon. And your co-host is Jake, me. Yeah. Jake and I are editors for the CrimeWire.com website and uh we love to get articles from true crime writers so please get in touch with us and uh we'd love to talk you through the process it's crimewireteam at gmail.com send us an email and we'll get you started okay today we're going to talk about a case that's been going on since 2009 is that right jake that's when part of the timeline begins the the murders themselves were earlier but we'll get into that Right. Yeah. That was the discovery of the crimes, correct? Right. Yeah, basically. And what we're talking about is the West Mesa bone collector serial killing case in in West Mesa, New Mexico. Do I have that right? I mean, those are the the Google keywords you would use to search (laughs) the case on the Google search console. Yeah, sure. It's, It's essentially 11 women that we know of who were violently killed by a serial killer. It was Albuquerque's first real serial killer. And I mean that in terms of the way the police refer to it. Uh, undoubtedly, there's been other serial killers. I mean, there are for, for sure serial killers in uh, Albuquerque. But this is the first one that really got on the public radar. And it, was, it ended up being the largest crime scene in American history, which is kind of a, a notable fact that uh, you know, this case in many ways kind of slips through the cracks. It's a very phantom-like case, and I think it's because the killer was unidentified for so long, even though they basically know who the killer most likely is, and we're going to get into that. Right. And we're referring to a great article that Jake wrote for The Crime Wire that you should go check out. And, you know, a lot of the references, I mean, Jake has done extensive research into the case to the point where you went and interviewed uh, a lot of the kind of main players and law enforcement and reporters and stuff like that, correct? My family lives, my, my family retired in Albuquerque or near Albuquerque. And so I've routinely gone back and, and lived with them at various times in my life. Sometimes it was to help them move. Sometimes it was because I needed a place to live. And one time it was, uh, that time it was actually because I broke my hip. Uh, oh, wow. I fell and broke my hip. It was also kind of, you know, synchronous because I, it, what, that was a case I wanted to look into. And so while I was there, I was like, you know, I, I should really put boots on the ground, as they say, and actually try and speak to some of the people on the ground. Because at this time, this was in 2019, and uh, there was still a lot uh, that was not known about this case and a lot of uh, misapprehensions, I think. For sure. Now, I want to preface it with, and you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I looked at it and West Mesa isn't actually a city or a town or anything. It's just sort of like an area that's a little bit west of Albuquerque. Is that right? No, I think there is a West, there's a West Mesa Plateau area. Right. This area is, just to give, you, give uh, the listeners some... Um, valid geographical uh, context. So this area is on the outskirts of basically what we would consider to be Albuquerque. However, at the time in which the crimes were committed, even a little bit when they 
were discovered. But when the crimes were committed, this area was very desolate. This was basically the high desert plateau on the outskirts of town, kind of where you get out into wilderness areas. And, you know, this was a place that, uh, you, you know, you can go out there and you can find ancient petroglyphs left by people that had lived in this area up to 10,000 years ago. So this has a, a long history to it, but, you know, where our story picks up, in the early 2000s, this area had become the city part of it, where the city picks up in the West Mesa area. Central Avenue was called the War Zone. This was a neighborhood. It was extremely high crime. It was more than twice the national average in terms of uh, violent crime and murders. Oh, wow. But the story really gets on the radar in 2009. Now, what happened in 2009 was... A woman named Christine Ross lived in a subdivision in a West Mesa neighborhood. Ironically, it was called Paradise. And she was walking her dog, her dog named Ruka. And Ruka was sniffing around and sought out a bone and brought it and presented it to Christine. And she looked at it and she texted a picture of it to her sister, who was a nurse. And her sister said, that looks like a human femur bone. Cut to later that day, police are on the scene, and they very quickly start excavating bodies, uh, skeletal remains. It turned into, like I said, the largest crime scene in American history in terms of the cumulatively the man hours, the, the resources used, the amount of space we're talking about. I mean, this was a huge excavation project out in the desert. And at the time, like I said, it was a very desolate area. So they ended up finding 11 bodies, 12 when you count a fetus, which likely belonged to one of the women. There was not enough forensic evidence to say for sure what happened, but based on the nature of the bones, they, they assumed some of the people had been perhaps decapitated, but they for sure said it was homicidal violence, and it was almost certainly a serial killer because... Why else would all these women be buried in one place, you know, out in the desert? Chilling discovery. Here's a question for you. Do you think they were buried at some point when it was even more remote and then the city just kept kind of, the urban sprawl just kept moving out closer to the burial area? Well, yeah, that's what happened. Okay. The murders took place, but they believe, 2004 and 2005, and they were buried approximately at that time too so they were buried there for about five years before they were discovered at which point yeah the urban sprawl had spread and that's why they were found but it's they're lucky that they were found when they were because the police chief later said that yeah the development became so intense after that the housing developments that were built there it's quite probable that they would not have been discovered uh, if they hadn't been found uh, you know around then or, or before that they would have just been built over. It would have just been built over. It would have been a, a burial site underneath lots of neighborhoods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you say it's a large crime scene, tell me that fact again. You said it was the largest crime scene. Well, in, in terms of the way, the excavating of the bodies, what they found was the burial site. But, you know, when you add it all together, given that they don't know exactly where the crime scene was, technically the crime scene would also include the war zone neighborhood, Central Avenue, where these were sex workers. The majority of the victims were sex workers who lived on the streets mostly. Many of them were homeless. Many of them were young. Two of them were 15. 
total of 11. Uh, the majority of these women, like I said, had they were going through problems. Some of them had drug problems. You know, that makes them part of a very vulnerable marginalized subgroup of the population. I really wanted to get in this phrase that from your article that you used, um, because it's just so darkly appropriate, the less dead. Could you explain what that means? Right. So I didn't coin that phrase, and I'm not sure who did, but this is a generally used phrase. It's used by criminal psychologists to refer to, usually these are, these are the victims of serial killers who are often part of socioeconomic underclass uh, in terms of representation. Usually these are minorities. Uh, these women were mostly Latina and also people who are sex workers who use drugs. These are elements that uh, in the minds of a serial killer historically make them more likely target these women because they, they believe that one, the police are less likely to take seriously any missing persons reports, which is exactly what happened in this case. And then also, two, there's usually less of a public uproar. And unfortunately, that's was the case here. So this is when we have to flash back to 2004 and 2005, because there was a detective on the APD, the Albuquerque Police Department, a detective who was noting she was starting to look into the increasing number of missing women. And she had noted that most of them were sex workers. These missing person reports were not taken seriously by the sex crimes division of Albuquerque's police department at the time. And in fact, as I explain in the article, and I don't know if we'll get into that much detail in, in this recording, but the response of the APD was abysmal. And, and this is typical for police departments in terms of how they respond to missing women who they think are sex workers or who have drug problems is that they they just really don't take it seriously. They don't think about it or care about it that much. And they only started to take it seriously in 2009 when suddenly it was something they couldn't ignore. It was in the headlines. It was a major thing. And suddenly there's a serial killer loose in the city. And that was a big deal. And people started asking a lot of questions. And Detective Ida Lopez, who was the detective who initially brought these women to the attention of the department, she went back and looked at when they finally identified the remains of the women there, she compared it to her original report, and it was like nine or ten women that was the same. So if they had taken it seriously, then they would have gotten a five-year head start on trying to solve the crime. Instead, it took over a decade before any anything approximating answers or accountability was forthcoming. Yeah, she had been sounding the alarm and was essentially ignored, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Write for the CrimeWire. Email crimewireteam at gmail.com for more information. So now they've got this evidence right in front of their faces and they can't really deny it at this point. Now, should we discuss the APD a little bit just because they had their own problems and it's almost like the unearthing of these bones, this crime scene, almost could be a metaphor for unearthing of what was going on the APD at the same time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And which could maybe explain why they were reluctant to get involved in this stuff in the first place. Yeah, no, absolutely. So because of this investigation, we'll start with uh, the Department of Justice basically investigated the Albuquerque police, and um, it was a you know independent civil investigation. And 
they found that between 2009 and 2012, APD officers participated in 20 fatalities that officials uh, suspected of involving excessive force. There was a big case that got national headlines uh, in which uh, deputies were on camera shooting like a mentally ill man. You know, I think perhaps more relevant to this case is the allegations of rape, because in 2013, a former sex worker filed a lawsuit accusing ex-New Mexico state officer Timothy Carlson of raping her and his police cruiser. The lawsuit named another sex worker who alleged a similar assault by Carlson. And in 2007, APD officer uh, David Mays was arrested and charged with raping a woman who transported from the Veterans Park Hospital a case that the city eventually settled for $575,000. In 2005, an APD vice squad detective was arrested and charged with kidnapping and raping a 14-year-old girl. Uh, He was later acquitted in 2007. In 2004, Sergeant Mike Garcia was arrested and charged with statutory rape of a 12-year-old girl. He was also acquitted. These are only a few of dozens of allegations that are documented in sources here Uh, It goes on and on. There was a district judge arrested in 2011 for raping a sex worker. And of course, as everyone knows, these are just the crimes we know of, alleged crimes. Some of these people were acquitted. We should note that. But there's a clear pattern here, huge pattern. These are just the ones we know of. Uh, the The vast majority of rapes are not reported, especially when the perpetrator is a cop. So this was a huge scandal for the DOJ to get involved like this. And in my time on the ground there in Albuquerque, I I interviewed people with a group called Street Safe. And this was a team of people that worked with homeless women, sex workers, most of them. And they they corroborated a lot of the uh, disturbing allegations against uh, APD officers. There was a a well-known local story that stems from this case. And one woman I talked to corroborated it. And so there was an officer who would, he would physically harass the local sex workers and he would like terrorize them by joking with them and telling them that he was the West Mesa killer, mm. you know, so just sadistic psychological games as well. These women were not treated as people, as citizens. At some point they had two pretty viable suspects. And, and as you said earlier, leaning more towards one. Yeah. So Within five months of Ruka the dog's, you know, bone discovery, the police chief at the time, Ray Schultz, announced that they had narrowed down the suspect pool to five people. But there were really two people that they they really thought were likely to be the bone collector. Who was this guy that killed a lot of people? Eleven is just from that site. And that, that's what needs to be underscored first here is that it's quite possible there were other burial sites. Yeah, it's a big desert. <laughs> it's a big desert. And so there have been efforts to scour for other disturbed ground sites. But the first major suspect was this guy, Joseph Blea. And the reason I feel comfortable naming him, even though he most likely was not the West Mesa serial killer, is that Joseph Blea is a horrible man who is in prison for other crimes. He was a serial rapist. He, he earned the name, I think it was like the mid-school rapist. He like literally hung around outside junior high schools. And I mean, he's just a horrible person. He was convicted of rape 
But he also, this guy, an unsealed search warrant affidavit would reveal that between 1990 and 2009, Blaya had been in nearly 140 law enforcement encounters involving prostitution and drugs along the East Central Corridor, where many of, of the West Mesa victims had worked before they went missing. And one police report documented that Blaya exposed himself to a sex worker before dispatch discovered rope and electrical tape on his front seat. So as a result of that, APD's repeat offender project detectives, they followed Blaya for four days as he stalked sex workers in his car and drove back and forth between the west side of Albuquerque and the east side. Detectives interviewed a sex worker who described an incident in which Blaya took her to his home, tied her up against her will, and the only reason they found out about some of this stuff is because a week after the West Mesa discovery, the bone discovery in 2009, Blaya's ex-wife, April, called the police and told them to search for evidence of his involvement. But he was already a suspect because of, of the incidents outlined before. This is a, a guy that was ultimately convicted and sentenced to 90 years in prison. Undoubtedly, he was a violent serial rapist, but was he a serial killer? And more importantly, was he the West Mesa serial killer? Uh, a new decade would uh, say probably not. It's a good time to remind people, A, check out Jake's article on thecrimewire.com about the West Mesa murders. And if you would like to submit your own articles, don't forget to email us at crimewireteam at gmail.com. And you know, go check out thecrimewire.com and see... Uh, what we do. It's a vast array of different types of crime are covered on the website. So if you're not into the kind of more gruesome murder type of articles, but but you want to expose something like a corrupt government scandal or something, we're wide open to suggestions like that. So get in touch and let us know what, what you're thinking about. The Crime Wire. Solving crime. One article at a time. Okay, suspect number two, Lorenzo Montoya. Tell me about him and how he became uh, a suspect in this case. We'll get to Montoya. He's he's our destination here. But in 2010, like I said, they believed that there were more victims. There was a task force that was assigned to this. And they basically felt that there were probably other victims and additional burial sites. In 2010, the Albuquerque police released photos to the public identifying seven women they feared were also victims of the West Mesa serial killer. Can I ask you about those photos real quick? Because mm -hmm. you linked them on the article and I went and checked them out. Where did they get those photos? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't, they don't think they've said. Because it's weird that they, if they were crime scene photos, because some of the women look like they're unconscious, perhaps dead. Mm -hmm. And then there's some where they're just posing. You know, and I just, I was trying to figure out like, did they find these with the bodies or something? Or it's, it just, I was confused. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I don't know the answer to it. Um, it's just the police released it. There's a lot the police haven't released. Um, speaking of photos, a photo they didn't release, but which I somehow was able to see because of a source that had worked close with, with the police was what we'll end up talking about with the second suspect and the main suspect and the guy who is most likely the bone collector, and that is Lorenzo Montoya. So 
the task force that I referred to before was called the 118th Street Task Force. Now, that 118th Street, I think, is the nearest street to the burial site in West Mesa. The main suspect for years was another local man suspected of hiring sex workers and sexually assaulting them. Lorenza Montoya was additionally known to actually stalk women on the East Central Corridor, and he had a long track record of violence against sex workers. So for years before the West Mesa murders, the APD detectives had already investigated Montoya in connection to several missing women in the city. Back in 1999, vice detectives tracked and eventually arrested Montoya, picking up a sex worker, and he attempted to rape and strangle her in his car. Detectives believed he was basically going to kill her. Uh, the biggest indication for, for police was that in 2006, which is only one year after they believe these murders happened, Montoya was actually shot and killed. Okay, he was killed by the boyfriend of a freelance dancer. The boyfriend was basically waiting for his girlfriend to go and do a freelance dancing session with Montoya. And the girlfriend stopped responding to his text messages while he was waiting. So he basically got out of his car and approached the, the address, and he literally caught Montoya in the act of dragging the dead woman's body out of his trailer home. The victim was naked and bound by the ankles, knees, knees and wrists with duct tape and cord. And I'll just say that those pictures definitely exist. Uh, police believe Montoya strangled her to death, essentially, and it fits the profile. So this is, this is why they think that Lorenzo Montoya is the bone killer. And this is, uh, according to several sources, very close to the case including even the former police chief, Meyer. Uh, the initial DNA tests on his home carpets, they didn't yield any like direct matches, but Montoya lived near the burial site, like almost walking distance, or like you can see the burial site from his home. And he had a criminal history of physical assault and attempted rape against sex workers in the same area where the victims went missing. And I think the biggest indication was he was killed in the act of trying to dispose of a hired dancer's body. And her body was completely naked, just as the victims of the West Mesa burial site were found. It seems as though the killer, you know, was killed. But it's strange because while that may be the most probable conclusion, the police haven't announced this. They haven't said this definitively. They certainly haven't said the case is closed. And so it's mysterious. It's very mysterious. It feels as though maybe there's more information out there about what's going on that hasn't been released. Or they think that they can still find additional victims and they think maybe someone close to Montoya could still be alive. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe one guy, the Dirk Gibson guy, I think, serial killer expert, he said it's it's quite possible there's more than one, more than one killer, multiple bone collectors. There was overlap at some point with the highway initiative that the FBI launched, where they thought that there was a possibility that long-haul drivers were killing people, or at least one long-haul trucker was picking women up from one town, 
killing them in another and then depositing their bodies in a third town just to make it extremely difficult to track the case. Well, I had an observation, sort of an an odd thought that came to fruition as I kept reading your article, because there's so much information about the APD being corrupt and also, you know, probably involved in some sexual assaults and rapes, things like that, as you mentioned. I started thinking before I even got to this section, was one of these cops the the uh, the bone collector because it just seemed like it was either so incompetent or such a cover up that like by never announcing that they've quote solved the case just keep it in this ambiguous gray area for as long as they can maybe they there's one or more cops involved i'm not saying there are i'm saying it's mentioned as as a possible theory in your article right oh definitely look i'll, I'll let me start by saying that there's no credible evidence that's been publicly released that a police officer was involved in any of the West Mesa killings directly. Um, but here's why those rumors are still out there. So the the details surrounding essentially two of the victims who were found at the West Mesa burial site were named uh, Cinnamon Elks and Jamie Barella. Cinnamon's mother whose name was Diana Wilhelm. She reported to police that before her death, Cinnamon told friends that a dirty cop was killing sex workers, and she said that he was beheading them and burying their remains. Soon after this, Cinnamon went missing. All right, And then throughout 2005, Wilhelm told police she received multiple calls from various individuals, including a private investigator, telling her that Cinnamon had been uh, essentially beheaded. And she said the police did not respond to these reports. Remember, this is the mother of one of the victims, whose friend, Cinnamon's friend, 15-year-old Jamie Barella, called her to confirm, to say, yes, Cinnamon had been murdered. And then Jamie herself went missing soon thereafter, and her bones were also found. It was just a creepy sequence of events. It's quite possible there were people that were trolling the victims' families. Unfortunately, that's a reality in a lot of these cases, and it's really just horrifying and sadistic. Unfortunately, the the victims' families in this case have just been kind of jerked around so much by police and the media, and it's really sad. I feel sorry for them, and it just exposed a lot of dark, dark stuff going on, not just by the perpetrators, but by, you know, the police themselves, their attitudes, very misogynistic attitudes among the Albuquerque police. And we can get into a final segment where we talk about, you know, how bad it got in the department and efforts to reform it and where the case stands now. Just now, as you were wrapping up, I was going to ask, wow, this really sounds like something the FBI should get involved with, you know? The FBI was involved. The FBI always gets involved in these things, but, you know, they haven't delivered any resolution to it. Probably because the their attitude towards these less dead victims is, the, is not dissimilar to the APDs, right? Yeah. Isn't that a, a eerie and, like, dystopic phrase, the less dead? Yeah. It, it really jumped out at me as, as like, wow, that's, that is so sadly descriptive of, of what's going on. Right. Well, I think it kind of refers to the dehumanization of people. It's not, it's not so much that they're less dead as that they were considered 
less alive as people, less first-class citizens. These women were sadly part of kind of a socioeconomic underclass that the police didn't really think of themselves as being charged with protecting, and that became kind of the dual portrait that emerged from the investigation. So while the killer is likely dead and buried, more of his victims are likely out there. Hopefully there will be new technology, new advancements in detecting disturbed ground, disturbances in the ground. Satellite technology could help find additional victims and maybe even solve the case. You know, if there was an artifact left behind, that could be directly tied to Montoya. I think that's probably what they're hoping for is certainty before announcing that the case is closed. I mean, it's not like they can prosecute this guy. He's dead. So I'm not sure, even if they're only like 85% sure, I don't know what the harm in announcing it is if, if it's as sure as they're acting like. But the most likely answer to the identity of the bone collector is it's Lorenzo Montoya. But we don't know for sure. Um, yeah, so in other words, the APD just doesn't have an official stance on it. Like, we consider it solved or we just don't know or... They haven't definitively said that the case is solved. You know, according to people pretty close to the investigation, the profile of the killings that characterize those 11 women seem to largely end, you know, soon after that, you know, which is not to say that there haven't been other violent crimes or other women gone missing, even other sex workers who have gone missing, but they haven't seen the same kind of pattern of missing women in that area since then. So that's another indication that that particular killer could be dead. But there could be another killer doing what he did back then, right now, and we won't know about it for another decade, because that seems to be how these things work, unless a dog named Ruka finds your, your leg bone. Yeah, we need another hero dog to step up. The Crime Wire. A crime-writing community for digital sleuths, armchair detectives, and future mindhunters. Let's get into the toy box killer a little bit, just because it's a local case and it actually has a direct connection to the victim. So tell me uh, about that a little bit and how it connects to the uh, West Mesa case. Okay, so good question. It kind of puzzled me for a minute because I was like, why were they referring to the bone collector as Albuquerque's first serial killer when clearly the toy box killer was earlier, significantly earlier. And I think the reason is because technically the toy box killer, who we will get into, whose name was David Parker Ray, he operated, I think, not directly in New Mexico. I think maybe it was Texas. So I think there's the distinction. But the toy box killer connects to this case because one of the women who ends up helping with Street Safe in Albuquerque and talking to some of the women on the street in Albuquerque because she was part of this advocacy group caring for them. And I went out and observed them a few times and it was really great what they did. They basically would just pull up on these streets and, and women who either live on the street or live in you know very impoverished conditions, they can come and get a variety of basic tools, hygiene products, reproductive care, things like that. They can get tests if they need it. They can get treatment if, if they need it. And so it's just a, it was a cool thing to see in progress. And then to find out that the co-founder of it, Cynthia Vigil, 
was actually the woman who escaped from David Parker Ray, who, you know, is a huge part of him being caught. And this is just an incredible story that interconnects with this one incredible survival story. I mean, if you know anything about the Toy Box Killer, it's utterly chilling and horrifying what happened to her and to his victims. March 22nd, 1999, Cynthia was found stumbling down a street in Elephant Butte, New Mexico, and she was naked except for a dog collar that was attached to her neck. And she was begging people to stop their cars and help her. And finally someone did, and she had just escaped serial killer David Parker Ray. This is one of the most chilling cases, I would say, in history. This guy transformed a cargo trailer into a mobile torture chamber. And there he abducted and brutally murdered as many as 60 women. The exact number is not fully known. Parker used handmade torture devices, really horrifying things that I don't even want to go into because they're just not good for the mental environment. Um, the psychological part of it, I think, underscores kind of how sadistic he was. So Parker would play recordings for the women after he had abducted them and they were, you know, tied up and incapacitated. He would play recordings for them in which he explained like what he was going to do in very graphic detail. And these are really long, gruesome recordings and it's just, they've been authenticated as real and it's just really disturbing. And thank God Cynthia Vigil escaped this guy and uh, her subsequent court testimony ensured that he would get life in prison. So an incredible story. Yeah, for sure. And a direct connection to this case. Right, because she went on to lead Street Safe and assisted the detectives and officers in the investigation. They kind of became, I, I described it as street-level investigators, because they were collecting first-hand testimony and a lot of back-channel information. And both law enforcement officials and the victim's family members felt comfortable talking to the Street Safe women, Christine and Cynthia. A lot of the family members, they didn't trust the police. They didn't want to talk to the police about the details of their lives for good reason. I talked to a few of the moms of the victims, and they sounded so just dejected. It was sad. Uh, and the overall impression I got was that they were just utterly let down by the police. And one woman said that the, the police were so absurd in their deviousness. I mean, he, it was just almost, I couldn't believe it almost what she said, that the police would refer to the women, the missing women, as their favorite, quote unquote, like their favorite girls, as in, oh, uh, she was, your daughter was a sex worker and we knew who she was because we employed her services, which is just such a... a yeah, and, the, and then they're rating them too. Yeah, it's such a disgusting, sick, it's a sick thing to do for anyone to do, but to do it as a police officer when you're talking about a person's missing daughter, it's just so gross, you know, and that's just one of many examples we've outlined here that show why, you know, these victims, and we want to name them here, because they definitely didn't get justice while they were live. You know, these people went through tough lives, and so they're Jamie Barella, Monica Candelaria, Victoria Chavez, Virginia Cloven, Solania Edwards, Cinnamon Elks, Doreen Marquez, 
Julie Nieto, Veronica Romero, Evelyn Salazar, Michelle Valdez. And the the oldest one on that list is 32. Most of them are in their 20s. Yeah, most are in their 20s, 2 or 15. So it's really tragic. Um, there were efforts to reform the APD. I interviewed Sergeant of Sex Crimes Division in person, actually. I went to the department and she really, I asked, you know, I tried to ask tough questions. She was really good at spinning and saying, you know, they're making tremendous efforts to change the environment. But then there was a huge lawsuit filed by two detectives who said directly that her and her department had had essentially tried to shut down any kind of rape investigations of, of sex workers. So any effort at cleaning house was destroyed. She was very optimistic, but then she disappeared completely. And there was a lawsuit filed against her claiming that she helped cover up cases. So it doesn't sound like that endeavor ended well, which doesn't bode well for the future of the department. But hopefully, overall, more awareness on the subject of of police violence against women and overall violence against women. It's pretty bad. The statistics are pretty grim. And uh, you can read more about them in the article. For sure. I mean, I've been to Albuquerque a couple of times, obviously not as much as you have, but I like that city a lot. I like the people there and they deserve better. Women deserve better for sure. They don't deserve to be treated like second class citizens, no matter what their profession is. Yep. You said it. So we covered Jake's article on the crimewire.com about the West Mesa killings. And uh, if you are a writer, a true crime fan, and you'd like to submit an article, maybe where you live or something you know about or you're interested in, why don't you send us an email at crimewireteam at gmail.com and uh, let us know what's on your mind. And maybe we can uh, get you set up in, in writing for the Crime Wire. Thanks, Jake. This was very uh, dark, but uh, informative for sure. I, I learned a lot from the article and talking to you today. Cool, man. And uh, let's get together for episode four of the CrimeWire podcast soon. I guess we'll see you next time on the CrimeWire podcast. This has been a production of thecrimewire.com.